everyone. Welcome to part two of Ivan Illich's Gender. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, like I... Probably once we start getting into the, the chapter on the gendered world, it'll mm -hmm. make a little bit more... Yeah. Maybe we should have done this whole thing backwards. <laughs> here's the gendered world. Here's the thing that ruined it. Well, well, here's on, on page 51, there's another point that really hit home for me. And I think this is kind of helpful. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just read it first. While during the 19th century, technological change revolutionized work outside the household. At first, it had little impact on housework routine, except for tightening the enclosure into which each housewife was locked. Tap water put an end to her carrying jugs to and fro, but also to her meeting friends at the well. That, those two lines, was so significant. <laughs> um, because what I hear women complaining of the most is isolation. Mm -hmm. Totally. Because what's different between the 1950s housewife and like, living in a gendered world in like the 1200s is that in order to survive... You can't just stay in your house. You have to be out going to the marketplace, going to the well, going out to the fields. Like you're just out in places outside of your house. You have to interact with people. You can have like your whole world and you're very mobile actually in your world. Um, but in the 1950s, because everything is moved inside of the house and it takes less and less skill to produce those goods, you don't you don't ever have to leave. Like, I just have always found it kind of weird that you can live in your little suburban house and never yeah. leave and be perfectly well, content. And now you can get Amazon to just drop all of your needs off at the door. You don't ever have to leave. Dude, that's that's hell. <laughs> <laughs> but it's – I think he briefly describes shadow work as the shadow of wage labor. And I think that's really important mm -hmm. because when we describe the sort of hellish, repressed – you know, immobile housewife existence. Um, we need to understand it as being related to the immobility of the wage laborer because they have, they are now yeah. doing the same thing. This is what Illich keeps getting to. It's not women's work. It's unisex work. It's just a division within a factory economy. So, okay. Now the man goes to a place that he can't leave and he clocks in and he gives his mm -hmm. time in order to produce the economies. And now the woman goes to her place that she can't leave and she clocks in and she updates the same commodities that the man is producing. Um, but, but the point is that they're both, they're both involved not in subsistence living, but in living through commodities, right? Mm -hmm. So living in such a way that a third party uh, produces profit. And you have to keep coming back to this. He's talking about the necessary relationship between the sexes for capitalism to work. And if you are going to if you are going to pursue profit rather than life, right? So I mm -hmm. want money, not subsistence, not just the continuation and enjoyment of life. Then you have to make anything that you can part of a sale, part of something that produces mm -hmm. money. And so it makes sense when you look at the immobility of the household. Um, of the 1950s household, but also I think it's still here. I just think it's silly that we pretend like we're, we're over it because now we watch different TV shows that tell us we're yeah. like women are no longer <laughs> trapped in the home when obviously just have one kid and see what happens. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, what you mean is insofar as you can maintain life that is like a man, then you mm -hmm. will be able to be mobile, which is just sexism that you haven't experienced yet. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Okay. So I'm just saying that like the, the 
consideration when he talks about the apartment in that way, he's really rhetorically describing um, the way in which sexual difference in those two worlds have closed into one industrial system in which men and women play different roles for the sake of the production of profits elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one one last point that I wanted to touch on that when when we were talking earlier about the 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 isolated suburban housewife, um, the the point about tap water put an end to her carrying the jugs to and fro, but also to her meeting friends at the well. Um, yeah, I think part of what uh what it means to live a full life is to have a life of of friends totally but if you are isolated to your house and you don't leave except for events um it's just a lot harder to have a natural life full of friendships and unexpected encounters and it seemed like women were able to be more mobile in that regard mm-hmm. because it like it, just the whole life was structured that way like in many ways i think that's why to me college seems in some ways more like a natural setting like it's weird because you're with people who are either like four years older or younger than you like very yeah. narrow age range um and nobody has like a real job. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's weird. But what does feel really natural about it is that there are commons, like mm-hmm. there are actual common areas, mm-hmm. or uh, you don't have the well that you go to, but you have the cafeteria, right, 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 and you right. just you run into people naturally. Right. That's how friendships just emerge naturally. And I think that's why everyone loves college because you just, you just run into people all the time and you just have friendships and it's great. College has nothing to do with education and everything to do to do about being a Disneyland for normal life. Yeah. It's like, I want to go experience something where everything's basically walkable and I have friends. It's like, right. That's called how we've always lived until we decided that money was more important than anything else. Uh Yeah. Which is funny because now we pay a lot of money to have an experience of what life was like before all we cared about is money. Mm-hmm. I guess that's not funny. That's sad. Let's cry. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in this time to see Maria and Mark cry. <laughs> He's got some zingers, man. You know, um, he says the initial effect of the diffusion of household technology among middle class women was to raise their standards of household care and to transfer several functions that had previously been performed outside the home or by paid employees to the purview of the housewife. Uh, concurrently, time priorities changed for the housewives. Whatever time they saved, let us say in cooking, they were expected to transfer to other tasks, primarily childcare. The hypothesis, if proven, would be dismaying because our thoughts about domestic and foreign planning have been predicated on the assumption that if you wanted to curb curb poverty in India, you should introduce modern agriculture and birth control. But the relationship between the sexes is not likely to be improved simply by the introduction of male contraceptives and bigger and better vacuum cleaners. Boom. <laughs> just so good. Because the basic point is that, well, once you have a total industrial system and you're all just sucking in commodities in order to continue existence and no one owns anything with which they can exist as a subsistent reality, um, then if you take away the drudgery of some one you know, commodity updating that a woman has to do, you just put it onto another. Yeah. So childcare in this sense. But this is also, I think, he, he talks a little bit about um, it for his time – Valium addiction and soap operas where, you know, 
even if this is maybe a longer discussion, but even when you can sort of imagine a technologically perfected apartment in which the value value necessary to add to commodities is done so with great ease, uh, it doesn't lead to fulfilled people mm -hmm. because people are fulfilled precisely in what you're talking about and about yeah. work in work by which we have community. Yeah. Um, and when you deprive people of that, they just end up treating themselves as the value deficient commodity. Okay, well now I need to be updated and I have all this, maybe I have spare time somehow because I've managed to swing it. So now I'm watching shows, I'm doing drugs, I'm drinking a lot of white wine early in the afternoon. You know how it'd be. Maybe yeah. you don't know how it'd be. <laughs> I know how it'd be. So, so he's super depressing in this regard. He's just saying that like, well, until you give ownership, until you have something besides a consumer society, you're going to get sexism. So what's the sexism within shadow work? Well, it's actually that it's actually almost an accident in that because wage labor belongs to the man and shadow work is still necessary. Um, women receive the brunt of it. So they, they have to do mm -hmm. all of the um, things that are not even, remunerated or valued or admired in terms of money yeah. like i don't think what he's saying is be, because i could see someone reacting to that and saying like well like i i am fulfilled like with my family and serving my kids like that's not what he's talking about like the reason why he's calling it shadow work is because you might experience it that way but the social economy doesn't see what you're doing as any value yep. i mean that's that's why we have to say things like yeah like like being a stay-at-home mom like is real work right like, we, we live to translate in a world where it, we have to say that <laughs> but we have to like translate it into the terms of labor and this is this yeah. is his point that well once like it you, is like a career it's just a kind of different one yeah yeah, yeah. it's so dumb i it just makes me it's so sad but but the reason we do it makes sense because what we're trying to say is like you know you see these studies like well if we paid women for doing all of this mm -hmm. stuff then this is how much they would get and isn't it a lot of money. So now we can value them because we know how much money they cost. Yeah. And, it, and, and I, <laughs> it just bugs me because what's, what's missing at every point is a sort of lost presumption that actually what human beings are supposed to do is just do the things they like and persist in being like that is the radical call of Catholicism is to stop <laughs> doing anything but what you actually like to do. I know that's, that's going to get some fire, but I do think that's true. So I think the one thing I want to say before before we just you know get destroyed in the comments there uh, <laughs> is that the shadow work is not by nature women's work. It's just by accident women's work. In fact, it's unisex work that's done historically by women. A consequence of this is that men can do shadow work and often do. Mm -hmm. Um, and this isn't simply in like the modern, uh, sort of arrangement of a like co-parenting situation, um, which is a term that I recently learned. Uh, so he says shadow work is not women's exclusive domain. It is as clearly genderless as wage labor. I'm on 53 here. Okay. Unpaid work to upgrade industrial production is done by males too. He gives some examples. The husband who crams for an exam on a subject he hates solely to get a promotion. The man who commutes every day to the office. These men are engaged in shadow work. True, the typical typical consumer is the household, and this is run 
by a woman. Um, but if women alone carried the burden of shadow work, it would be silly to say that within the realm of shadow work, discrimination works against women. This is precisely what happens, right? So how does it happen? Mm -hmm. How is within a realm of shadow work, how, how is it that women get the raw deal? Well, I think we've described this a little bit. Um, but basically, they, women, meet with, are met with shame and disgust if they fail within the realm of shadow work, whereas right. men right. can kind of engage in shadow work where necessary. But mm -hmm. ultimately, because, and it comes back to it, precisely because they don't have kids, like they do not bear children, mm -hmm. um, they can sort of dip in and out of this, of this, um, shadow, of shadow work. Right? Yeah. And, and again, I think it's important to highlight that when we're talking about shadow work and when Illich is talking about shadow work, he's not talking about like the actual things that are being done per se. Because then you can go back to a subsistence economy and watch people like completing the same chores, yeah. per se. When he's saying shadow work, he's talking about like this kind of work. Same things technically are being accomplished, but in a way that's done through commodities and is not valued by the economy. It's seen as mm -hmm. being kind of non-existent. Yeah, totally. And so, yeah, all the non, all the non-existent work that is like socially expected, but then socially not valued or seen as real labor at all. Yeah. It, it, it mostly women have to take care of that. I liked, uh, another example that he gave, gave too, which was about, um, education, mm -hmm. like education has now become a commodity. You send your kid off to school and they learn things, but then like when they come back, like work still needs to be done. Right. Like, some parent has to help them with their homework and right. like something has gone wrong if they don't receive assistance from home. And it's not like Illich is saying like, ah, oh, like parents shouldn't have to like help teach their children how to learn things. Pack their lunchbox and send them <laughs> off. Yeah. Like his whole, his whole point is that like, this is, this is a part of life. This is a part of labor and it's just assumed that would be done, but no one acknowledges that it's real. Yeah, well, they don't acknowledge it's real, but it's also that they are coming from a presumption. So here's a psychopathic thing to say, right? Like education is the updating of the human person to be a fit commodity to sell his labor on an open market. So that's psychopathic. Gross. You should be killed for saying that. <laughs> but it's something economists say all the time. Should economists be killed? Well, you do the syllogism. It seems to follow. Uh, but, <laughs> But... His point is not that this is actually how it is. His point is that given the presumptions of a capitalist society, it's how it is. Um, and so when we talk about – we're not – I think in, in explicating Illich, we're not trying to say, oh, all the things that you do um, to help your kids with housework, all the things you do to get food on the table, all the things you do to keep the house clean are in fact just – updating commodities and a valuable, like with, without value, without real value. The point mm -hmm. is that um, they do have immense value precisely mm -hmm. insofar as what they really are is a continued participation in a gendered world, right? Mm -hmm. But a gendered world that is a household that is trying to produce virtuous people together as a kind of common life that's trying to live together as mm -hmm. opposed to this mythic construction, which is sort of, I think, very violently imposed on every household in which what you're really doing is producing individuals for the sake of the state and the economy who at the age of 18 will finish their sort of weird 
uh, larva existence within the family <laughs> and then uh, blossom as people that never call you in New York, right? Like that's basically how, how we see the family now um, and stinks. And, but it's only from that perspective that we can then, I mean, Illich critiques the feminists who look at all this and say, fine, well, let's just pay them for it all. Okay, women are, mm -hmm. are doing this. Let's pay them for cooking dinner. Let's pay them for educating their children, you know, before they send off to, are sent off to school. Let's just acknowledge it. But the point is that that would be just a, I mean, you could do that and maybe there'd be a certain justice in terms of fairness there, but mm -hmm. it would just be a full on ascent to the complete destruction of anything yeah, besides. Yeah, it would be an ascent to the, anything and, that is value needs to put, we need to put a dollar sign on top of it. I think it's really tough for people. I think even Catholics are afflicted by this in ways because we're taught not necessarily directly, but just sort of in the air we breathe that, that money provides a real way of valuing something like everything else is sort of given over to maybe people lying to you or something's not really that valuable, but you know, money talks or, you know, put your money where your mm -hmm. mouth is or like money becomes the way in which we can be certain. I think that something has value. Mm -hmm. So the point is obviously to destroy the world in which that's true. So mm -hmm. money should be the thing that makes us actually uncertain that something has value. Um, <laughs> But where we're not willing to make that radical step and say, okay, a real destruction of a structure of sin is called for here, we um, we end up trying to say, okay, well, how can we value things with money? How can we? Yeah. So anyways. That, that ends up being yeah. the mode of justice is valuing things with money. Totally. And it's it's like the only arguments that have purchase. So if you ever try to make like, I don't know, some kind of like woke social justice um argument it always has to evoke um money as the marker it's like the reason that well it, it just seems like what's really missing is a life which is not simply admired for being a part of someone's way of getting rich that's what's actually missing how do we admire that well Illich's argument is the way we would admire that is by building um, gendered worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which, and we kind of skipped over another part of his practical thesis in chapter one, uh, which is in order to get away from sexism, like we need to shrink the economy. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's enormous. <laughs> yeah. Illich is saying this all the time in most of his works that we need negative growth. Mm hmm. Um, and I think he's quite right, if it can seem a little bit odd. There's a, a quote on 17. Um, yeah, he says, Upon reflection, I now see that an industrial economy without a sexist hierarchy is as far-fetched as that of a pre-industrial society without gender, without clear division between what men and women do say and see or just be. Mm -hmm. um, and then he says... Uh, yeah, such, so such a cutback, meaning of the cash nexus and uh, capitalist economy, however, means the repudiation of everyday expectations and habits now thought natural to man. Many people, including some who know that rollback is the necessary alternative to horror, view the choice as impossible, but a rapidly growing number of experienced people, together with an increasing number of experts, agree that cutting back is the wise choice. And then he talks a little bit about um, 
subsistence. Um, but uh, yeah, that the line about <laughs> uh, I think everyone kind of knows that rollback is necessary. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone's talking about it in some regard, even if it's like with social media, like you know, like technology is a good thing, but maybe totally, like yeah. TikTok and the metaverse, like let's roll that back yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that would also mean the repudiation of everyday expectations and habits that have now totally. become normal. yeah yeah and like i'm not immune to that <laughs> right totally yeah when you arrive as a society at a place where you can't really imagine doing the same thing um to get a different result then asceticism becomes the natural mode of thinking like how do we rid ourselves of even the desire um so like an obvious example would be like fossil fuel use it's like I think we're consciously at the point of considering fossil fuel use as something that we can't just figure out how to have more technological inputs in order to purify it. It's like we need to stop doing it, mm-hmm. but we don't know how to stop, so we're not going to stop. So we kind of live this sort of suicidal apocalypse. I'm just going to burn this gas as long as we can. Um, yeah, which I might I might take us on a very brief t- <laughs> tangent um, just because now this is connecting with – the work of new polity as a whole sure, yeah. because like we can we can look at these things and say like oh yeah rollback is necessary and it's it's helpful to be able to critique what's going on and it's helpful to look at other models like a medieval model not because we think that we can turn back the clock and and get there because that's impossible um but just for comparison um, and then it puts us in kind of an awkward situation where like we're criticizing these things and yet we're still participating in many of them, hence the right, Amazon right. link. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, sorry about the Amazon link. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't a way to get around Amazon, uh, basically, at the end of the day. For the gender book, she means. For the gender book. Um, yeah, so uh, I mean, maybe maybe it seems like hypocritical to criticize things and then continue to participate in the same structures um but i i think even if we if we want to change things like we recognize that okay like cold turkey stopping everything is going to lead to death (laughs) like no like you can't you can't yeah you can't just say okay well i'm not going to depend on a wage anymore i'm right, just gonna right, right. subsist for myself yeah totally like you don't live in a world where that's possible anymore yeah. you have to go live like by yourself alone in the country where no one is doing that with you yeah and maybe maybe there are and maybe there some people are called to do that kind of radical thing yeah um yeah i mean i, th- I think you're right i think the um what it comes down to is we don't own much and ownership is the prerequisite for the practice of freedom. So like when we say things like, oh, this situation's obviously bad, we should do something different. Those very words imply that you own the skills and property necessary to do the different thing, yeah. which is precisely what needs to be changed, which is that no one owns anything except uh-huh. for a very few. Um, and I, yeah, yeah, I guess, well, I, I've just been thinking about this being at New Polity for a while. Um because I, I think people are excited because what we're doing and what we're suggesting are very practical changes mm-hmm. to to life. But I, I think what people are less seeing is that what we're really talking about is the long game. Yeah. Like we're not talking about changes that you can make. And now now you are living life to the yeah. fullest. Now you are living as like a real 
like Catholic. Now, right. now you are like living like real Catholic social teaching. Nope, can't do that. Yeah, in this society, it's just it's too broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, the, there's possibility for change, but it's just it's going to be one generation at a time, and that's how the church works. So it doesn't mean stop participating in the world. It's just setting it up a little bit better for the next generation is how I've been thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, unless you're going to go be a desert father, which is super necessary too, because we need avant-garde, right? Like sacramental mm-hmm. signs that yeah. a new world is possible. It's just that for those people, it involves a radical asceticism. Like they literally have to lose even the most basic goods because it's precisely totally. structures of sin that begin to provide the basic goods of life. So that to avoid structures of sin in a, in a, final kind of way is to be deprived of basic goods. I mean, this is what the image of the ascetic is, mm-hmm. um, is a, is one who does leave the world in such a sense. Um, but yeah, it's not for all of us. But that to, being said, Oh, you're going to, you're going to transition. Now I'm yeah, excited I'm, about this topic. I mean, I you can swing it, <laughs> swing it back into actually chapter three, like sure. with, with the vernacular. Well, imagine if you would like, creating a world okay so you've heard this you get a basic inkling of what we think is bad and what we think is good but imagine oh my gosh Your phone is so so loud. Uh, imagine if you will just trying to create the results one in which there is no envy between man and woman because we occupy different spheres and we're not competing for scarce resources like there is no individual action that could produce that because it's a social reality, right. right? Yes, there's things you can do, but the things you do are not sufficient. It's not like you can. Yeah, you can't do it by yourself. That's impossible. So you first you create, okay, maybe you have a family and you can create a family in which there is no envy because you're, you are working together for a common good, mm-hmm. right? And you can have sexual difference understood in that way within your family because you really do have some authority and power there. Um the the turn to smaller activities is not shirking like you know the larger sort of regimes of positive law that we might be involved in um but it is to acknowledge that the problems that we have are not simply problems of positive law they are problems of the way we perceive the world and so there's there's no there's no way to create a new perception of the world except for by creating new perceptions within smaller worlds so mm-hmm. create people who do not have um, a structural androgyny, which leads them to envy, um, rather create, um, worlds for girls and boys that creates human beings that look to make them to make worlds without envy elsewhere. I mean, that would be, I mean, in other words, it's, it's acknowledging where you have actual power. Yeah. Um, because I think, yeah, like one, one, the reason why like Catholics aren't getting anywhere is that, we're being told that like, well, well, real power is where there's money or real power mm-hmm. is where like people are out doing these like political activities on this large scale. Mm-hmm. Like real power is in Twitter. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you have people focusing their energies out in places where like, eh, you're really not going to make that much of a dent. Yeah. Um, not to say that that's not necessary. I mean, like those, those yeah. things are, are important to do, but not at the expense of where you actually have the most power and ability to to change things so one of the things that we were talking about earlier was with like this idea of like the isolated suburban housewife and this is kind of epitomizes uh 
what is it reign of sex no it's the regime of economic sex yeah regime of economic sex and then okay we want to move into a, a a gendered world where yeah the the goal and value of life is not commodity or or money um and we have to do that socially because it's a social world and it begins by like small movements in that area. So, and, and one of them is just like recognizing like the structures that I'm in are making me unhappy. Like, I think that's key yeah, uh, and foundational. Um, and then, yeah. And then, I mean, this is what I see in Steubenville, mm-hmm. like people recognizing, Oh yeah. Like I'm, I'm un- unhappy being totally. an isolated individual. In fact, I need community right? and it's still not perfect because we're still living in structures where it's not organic just to like be around people. (laughs) Like we're still isolated in our suburban homes, but it's, it's moving in a little bit uh, of a better space. And, and hopefully as it gains traction, it'll be just a more natural space to move in and that can blossom over time. Maybe I'm being too vague. I but. think I think you're being very hopeful. Um, so the turn then to – I mean I think what you're saying is that we're about a very radical task, like going to the root, which mm-hmm. is unfortunately less rewarding than yeah. shifting something on the surface, which is visible and tangible yeah. and, mm-hmm. and immediate. Um, in doing so um, – we look back to the past again because you have a sort of complete act um, in the sense of you have a society that isn't simply known as something that might progress into modernity. It's something that is a life that made sense to people. And that's what we're after is a life that is natural, not really a life for ourselves, but a life which for our children is just the world, right? Um, that they will add to and make the world. <laughs> so I mean, look at the Middle Ages. Um, it's a world. So how did they live? What was that world like? Can we learn from it? Can we do better with our, can we react against our unhappiness by trying to, um, either imitate or just instantiate their happiness? Uh, so this leads to, I think, Illich's third chapter, Vernacular Gender, which he begins with a description of the bachelor. Which I just think is brilliant because it's really ha- it's really says it oh. <laughs> because the bachelor, the male, the unattached young married male is the pinnacle of our society. We cannot imagine anything right. better, anything more worth making a movie about. Here he is. Look at him. He can work and he can play and he can not be exhausted by either. Isn't he wonderful? Let's hope he never gets married. <laughs> uh, the opposite, it seems to be, is the case for most of history. He says – In early 18th century Paris, you can recognize the bachelor from afar (laughs) by his stench and his gloomy looks. From notary's records, we know that solitary men left no sheets or shirts when they died. Uh, In the time of Louis XIV, a man without a woman to keep house could barely survive. Um, I I think of the quote from the Book of Sirach. uh, um, A uh, land without a fence goes to ruin and a man without a wife sighs. (laughs) Without wife, sister, mother, or daughter, he had no way to make, wash, or mend his clothes. It was impossible for him to keep chickens or to milk a goat. If he was poor, he could not eat butter, milk, or eggs. He could not cook certain foods, even if he had the ingredients. 
Uh, and today in the rural Mexico I know so well, Ivan, that is not me, a woman would rather die of embarrassment than let a man cook the beans. Okay. Now, before we sort of jump down his throat about romanticism and it probably mm -hmm. wasn't really like this, and isn't it after all kind of lame that a man can't like handle a chicken because of his shame of looking like a woman or something. Let's just remember that we literally say these kinds of things about women in our society in relation to man, namely that they can't get on without a, like either becoming in themselves a wage laborer and not mm -hmm. marrying, or if they do have kids in being attached to a man who can be the wage laborer. So mm -hmm. in some ways, all that we're talking about within pre-modernity is it, ironically more equality, which is like yeah. an actually <laughs> instantiated need for each other to be involved in a complementary task at like working together for the common good to the point where we could say in earnestness that it's not good for a man to be alone, not as just like a theological sort of heady principle. But because he smells. But because he smells really <laughs> bad. It's like he needs a woman. Um, we live in a world that we've created so that men without women don't smell bad. Well, in fact, they do actually, <laughs> which is funny. It's just that we, we're in denial. Um, denial. And, and it goes, it goes both ways. Um, so he's about to discuss gender prior to the parasitic activity of economic sex, which was essentially a market opening activity um, whereby more labor was available to the capitalist. But prior to going into that, he's, I think we should, um, we should recognize that this is going to look a little odd for us because what we're going to see is human beings who cannot do certain things or who are most obviously known in their inability to do certain things because they belong to the other world, mm -hmm. they belong to a strictly defined um, right. gendered sphere. And I, I think it's also the case that uh what illich is saying and, and, and what's true of these societies is is not that people thought that men and wouldn't men and women like could could not like were physically unable of doing the other tasks right. like a man can handle a chicken i mean some men. i i assume i have a chicken named after me that's right you do right i'm building a chicken coop so as of yet i can't handle a chicken but <laughs> soon <laughs> um so uh yeah so so for for illich i think this was this was helpful um is that he's not trying he's what he is not saying is that men ought to do these things and women ought to do these things sure. that's not what he's saying because what he recognizes is that that can change. Totally, yeah. Um, and so he has, he's got a great quote on page 68. He says, gender is something other and much more than sex. Because he, he understands sex as being like this neutral term. Because mm -hmm. like I can apply it to myself or to you. Mm -hmm. um, it bespeaks a social polarity that is fundamental and in no two places the same. What a man cannot or must do is different from valley to valley. Um yeah, and he goes on. But uh, the idea of uh, when social anthropologists are, are looking back at these communities um, mm -hmm. and, and, and figuring out the way life was lived in the past, it's not so simple that you can look back on the past and say, man, like, weren't they so sexist? Like, women weren't allowed to do this, this, and this, mm -hmm. and this. This changed <laughs> right. from culture to culture, from nation to nation, even from valley to valley and village to village. Yeah. And, and so it, it's that whole structure that he's affirming and not like women should not be able to do this and men should not be able to do that. 
Trads could learn a lot from from Illich. I'm telling you, <laughs> affirm the structure, stay vague about the particulars, man. <laughs> Which I I think is, well, he he goes on and, and talks about later. In some places, just it's very beautiful. Yeah, and he says what Bohr and Heisenberg have done for the epistemology of physics has not yet been done for the social sciences. That light fits the paradigms of both particle and wave, mm. that neither theory alone conveys its complex reality, and that no broader framework allows us to grasp it more clearly are today every man's truths. But that similar approach is demanded for most social science concepts is still news for many, um, specifically in relation to gender. Um, the idea that the human reality is not some sort of objectively known thing that then there's a woman version of and a male version of. Um, but rather in the same way that he's, he uses the analogy of a, a light wave, which can be approached as a particle or approached as a wave. Um, mm -hmm. So too, the human reality is lived in a women's way and a man's way, which are um, can't just be exchanged for each other um, and are not just simply two ways of looking at the same thing, but rather together in their difference, they constitute the whole human reality. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to be human? Well, it's these things that we do <laughs> as men and women. Um, and that means that differentiation goes all the way down. There's never just like a totalizing thing you can say about any particular society. Well, um, they're all, they all do this or they can all be controlled in this way. Rather, um, you have to always know them to know what their men and their women do. He says this earlier on, um, to belong means to know what befits our kind of women. He's speaking from the perspective of, um, pre-modern to belong means to know what befits our kind of women our kind of man if someone does what we consider the other genders work that person must be a stranger mm -hmm. so the point is if you think about the comparison to like an industrial society in which anything can be sort of exchanged for anything else there's not the sense of of what what's fitting for a definite social world but it's actually because the social world is so immense it's like there's very little diversity but what it means to live a kind of way that divides the world in the polarity of sex or the polarity of gender um, is to have a unique way of doing things. It's not the case that we're going to have the distinction be the same in every case. This seems to be the great conservative mistake is to, is to look at an older time and then presume that the older time had the same homogenous yeah. description of sexual difference. It was just a homogenous difference that we liked. Mm -hmm. So, okay, back then women cooked and back then women cleaned and men worked or whatever. It's like, well, no. I mean, where are you talking about? Mm -hmm. What is true is that men and women occupy different spheres and did not seem to compete within a unisex sphere. That you can affirm. Mm -hmm. But maybe they cleaned here. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they cleaned on certain days. Maybe they didn't. So this whole chapter is just a bunch of examples of this, um, the completely unique and surprising ways in which you can divide the world up between the sexes. Yeah, I'm trying to find, uh, maybe we should jump into an example so that people know more what we're, what we're talking about. Well, I guess um, that that's really, the examples come in vernacular culture, next chapter in chapter four. Well, there's some here. I mean, he says, okay, um, he says, if, if, uh, so I'm at a certain place, I don't know which because I dropped the page, but if he notices geese loose in the harvested farm, he knows a girl must be nearby to tend them. If he comes across a sheep, he knows he will find a boy. Um, gender is in, uh, if someone, 
gender is in every step, in every gesture, not between, not just between the legs. Puerto Rico is only three hours from New York. Two-thirds of its people have been to the mainland. Yet, even today, in the interior of the island, there's no such thing as a Puerto Rican gate. Women sail down a path like sloops chopping in the trade winds, and men swagger and roll to the rhythm of the machete, but both in the unmistakably jibato fashion. Don't know what that means. One knows that they could not be from nearby Santo Domingo, I see, much less gringos from the States. And many Puerto Ricans' vernacular gender has survived for decades. Um, so, yeah. The point is that it's a difference that is all the way down, but mm -hmm. not, but it's, it's not relativistic, but it's still relative. Like we can decide different ways to be men and women. I mean, we talked about this a little with mm -hmm. Aquinas on gender construction, right? Right. That there's not just one way of there's doing multiple, it. There's multiple, there's multiple fitting creative expressions, just like there's multiple fitting creative expressions for building a house. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's, that's why I think he uses the word gender, uh, and vernacular gender because so w when you start learning different languages and you start noticing okay there's feminine and masculine and neuter nouns mm -hmm. like i remember like as a kid i was like these people are so dumb like they thought that like water was a girl <laughs> <laughs> stupid um but then but then like you you start to realize that what they're doing is making like cultural symbolic associations and just because different cultures had different ones didn't mean that they like got it wrong or they didn't understand the yeah. nature of men and women they're just looking at a different aspect of water and they're like oh this is mm -hmm. like i can see this like kind of revealing something about feminine nature yeah. in some way no, it, it's precisely in a homogenous capitalistic society that you expect and do, in fact, see gender difference oddly get more strict. You know, it's so weird. It's like, um, it's like sometimes the critique of the queer theorists is it just seems like it's wrong. I mean, what 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 they're angry about seems to be a world in which, be, precisely because we've all become androgynous workers and consumers, um. Precisely because of that, we can be fit into sex roles where like, okay, well, if you have this variation, you do, do this thing and you have this variation, you do that thing. And that goes from sea to shining sea because as long as you have the industrial system, you also have the um, corresponding sort of mm -hmm. sex role variation of the workers. Um, but that is not – that is not normal. You know, like that – like what should be protested is the very destruction of the gendered world that Illich is talking about. Um, but they don't want to do that. They just want to say, well, because it seems to be um, kind of silly and arbitrary here, it must be silly and arbitrary all the way down. There must be no metaphysical reality here. It's all just predicates. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just, I really appreciated that Illich is able to say that, yeah, uh, gendered worlds actually give people more I mean, he doesn't say this directly, but I think that he, he thinks that it gives people more mobility and freedom to flourish as themselves. Um, but it doesn't mean that there's a singular way that that has to be either. And this is can be creatively expressed in multiple cultures. And I, I think we talked about it in that episode, too, that that doesn't mean that when we look back on the past and we see that the way that different cultures have 
constructed this doesn't mean that they're all doing a good job. <laughs> right, totally. Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah. You can, still, you can still have bad constructions within the gendered world. Totally. In fact, you'd probably argue, I mean, the best, one of the best critiques I've heard about Illich is that he's sort of very, has a kind of amoral analysis of pre-modern cultures um, that misses some, he, he's talking about different things men and women do, and some of them are obviously very dark. Like at some point he, he seems to compliment abortion as like, well, that was a women's part of a women's world, and so oh, yeah. it only became like illegal uh, insofar as it as as the unique worlds were destroyed. Which, like, there's a certain truth too, but I think, you know, from my perspective at least, it's like, okay, so that's that was bad. <laughs> that yeah. was a bad woman's <laughs> world, right? If it involved killing children, mm -hmm. um, but it is important. To, what you said is important that um, having these worlds is not somehow its own justification um well no no i shouldn't say that having these worlds just doesn't necessarily imply that um the construction themselves are good but it it mm -hmm. is i think a good way of constructing um it seems to be a way that wants to differentiate for the sake of unifying uh, that wants to keep things separate in order to mm -hmm. um bring together that that wants to avoid envy and so naturally seems to fall into patterns in which things are not scarce or or the object of competition but like there's really closed and complete and fulfilling existences available to men and women um and i, I think another thing that's helpful for understanding what illich is talking about with gendered worlds when we think world we tend to be i i think it's easy to read illich and think that he is talking more like materialistically like about places mm. and like thinking that he's advocating for a world in which like men and women are barred from being in the same place when that's mm. not true mm -hmm. what he's saying is that men and women can physically operate in the same place but they do so within a different world and sphere and he talks about this more in tools so i don't want to talk about it too much but like you can have men and women out in the field and they're in the same place or you have men and women in the kitchen and they're in the same place, but the way that they operate and live there is different. Yeah. Um, and I mean, certainly there's like some constructions where like women were arbitrarily barred from places mm -hmm. in a way that was not good. Um, yeah. But that's not, that's not exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. So when he gets to when he gets to really describing vernacular gender, he calls it a phenomenon of ambiguous complementarity. Um, yes. And he uses as his analogy the right and the left hand. He says what we perceive as men and what we perceive as women can meet and fit not only because but in spite of the unique contrast between them, they fit like the right fits the left. So the point is they're not unified in what is common. They're unified in their difference. Mm -hmm. So your right hand and your left hand can do tasks together, especially if you think of like playing the piano or something mm -hmm. where there's actually distinctions that work together, not because they both are participating in this hand, which is neither right or left, you know, <laughs> as if the perfect left hand would be a right hand. Yeah. Uh, the perfect right hand and the perfect left hand would both be this thing that they were not. I just we, have like two thumbs on yeah. either side. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but this is basically an analogy for right the industrial society in which the perfect man and the perfect women are both the perfect consumer worker um 
Homo economicus, which transcends both of them. Uh, rather, the the fundamentally social nature of humankind requires or presupposes difference that never goes away. Because what it means to be social at some level means to relate to another in a way that never annihilates that difference, but is always receiving it, just mm -hmm. as you have never have your difference annihilated, but always receive it from, a, from another person, right? The right hand does not subordinate itself to become more like the left hand in order to fold your hands, say, in prayer or something. Mm -hmm. Rather, precisely because they are different, they can be unified into something beautiful. And it seems to me that... Um, well, a lot of things seem to me. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> yeah. So the so the right and the left is his analogy for this complementarity, um, and he makes it more than just an analogy. I mean, at some point he says each man and woman outside of a push button society depends for survival on the interplay of two hands. So he's actually mm -hmm. saying not only is this analogy, but within the industrial <laughs> society that ruins male female difference, it's also ruining complementarity of two hands because you just push buttons. Um, that was funny. But the two hands um, image is good because it better expresses um, fittingness and complementarity than um, like opposites or, or um, opposites isn't the right word like a antithetical relationship. Yes. Um, this is something Zizek brings up a lot where he says right. like, um, if you understand like the man and male, female difference is somehow two parts of a whole, then you're missing sexual difference. The mm -hmm. point of, uh, sexual difference is that the male perceives the whole differently than mm -hmm. the woman perceives the whole. So in neither case, do you have a objective view, right? You only have, the kind of historical reality of the meeting of, of two views. Mm -hmm. uh, so difference is always maintained. Yeah. And, and what it means is that there's always a tension mm -hmm. um, between the sexes. And so that tension could either take place in a world that uh, assumes falsely that men and women are just unisex neutrals and that tension manifests in competition yeah. or the tension can manifest in a way that prevents you from absolutizing the other right um and manifest more in a in a dance yeah the question is of. not how will we become the same but how will we marry how will the two things become one without not without not without <laughs> losing their tunis right yeah um and this is where gender seems to me to have a like pedagogical role because it actually teaches us, I think, how to deal with persons, period. Mm -hmm. It's not the case that um, it's not the case that men and women have this radical difference between them that they have to marry in order to relate. Um, as if that's the only place where it exists. It's also true between any two human beings, between any persons, because we are unique um, ex nihilo creations of an infinitely creative God right? Mm -hmm. Rather in the male female relation, it's like, a, uh, sometimes the family is called the school of love. And I think that's being quite literal, like in the sexual dif in sexual difference in, in the male female relationship, there is a school of love because you learn that there is an incommunicability of the other person, that there is an right. unrepeatability of the other person, that there is an incommensurate, like you cannot exchange or transfer the experience 
right? And you learn that in a really tangible embodied way. Like you just see it on the flesh and you, and you know it in the speech. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not simply for itself. Uh, it is for itself, but it's also for itself for our whole, um, interaction with others. Like when I love anyone of any sex, it is with what I have learned from sexual difference, which is the unrepeatability of, uh, the human person. It's like, it's a package. Might have to wrap this up and get, get some calls. Yeah. Um, the distinction that Illich makes is with exchange. He says, um, it may be appropriate, I'm on page 74, he's kind of summing this up. It may be appropriate to consider vernacular gender as the foundation of ambiguous complementarity uh, and the sex of economic neuters as the modern experiment to deny or transcend this foundation. By reducing all interaction to exchange, the social sciences have laid the groundwork for this denial and for the legitimacy of an economic analysis of the relations between men and women. So to go through this slowly, um, vernacular gender is the foundation of ambiguous complementarity. So that ambiguity is that there is no objective human anymore. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's ambiguous because the male perceives the relation differently than the female perceives the relation. But it's complementary in a way that right and left are complementary that precisely because they're different they can form new unities mm -hmm. yeah and I, I think i think this is well i i've seen this complaint uh among women um i think it's particularly in modern society like if we live in a unisex world uh where there are objective facts and there's some kind of objective stance from which we can judge things means that when the tension manifests someone is right and someone is wrong and yeah. like i i see this in the female complaint of like i can't like i'm like he's not understanding me or like an, an inability to communicate the feminine world and it can be frustrating um because again if we're living in in a world that assumes well someone has the objective stance and like whoever is louder <laughs> right, wins right, right they're the one who's right um but if you are operating out of a, a culture just that assumes that there's these two different ways of looking and seeing at the world but it's not that one has to dominate the other mm -hmm. and it's in fact that that tension that keeps you from absolutizing your position yeah, right. and this is in fact a good yeah exactly at no point do you have a grasp of the whole um you know and this is just basic sort of analogical metaphysics um aquinas says that the glory of god is is more fully revealed in a diversity mm -hmm. of creatures because god is infinite so he he is uh revealed best with multiplicity the more the merrier this is the catholic principle of the more the merrier yeah. uh <laughs> and it seems that in the very basic first moment of human existence man and woman you already have the more part of the more the merrier right you have um the taught fact that one is never enough to reveal the truth um and i think that's awesome i think it's very beautiful we compare that to the idea of a society that's sort of centered around the basis uh, on the basis of exchange, um, where any uh, action is considered as a um, as an exchange, 
that is technically transmutable to another individual. So if you and I are most basically just individuals, then everything that belongs to our sex is in, can in fact be exchanged with each other. Um, so then we're all participating in this fundamentally androgynous, sexless human world. Um, and then sex just becomes one of the variations that we carry sort of lightly. Um, mm -hmm. And that doesn't stop us from uh, uh, presuming that our our particular perspective is in fact the, the totalizing human perspective. And typically what happens is the male perspective becomes the totalizing human perspective because mm -hmm. men are louder. One of the things that Illich really hates is microphones um, <laughs> because he thinks that, well, a microphone is just a way for people that can afford the technology to be louder. I was reading another, uh, and, and not, well, the point is that basically louder people tend to, um, yeah. win when it comes to the game of who has the totalizing perspective mm -hmm. and men although, are notoriously loud <laughs> although i think you can swing it the other way too um like you can see the the totalizing feminist or feminine perspective happen when like any kind of uh i don't know like violence or danger especially with children is like that that's not allowed to exist and like in a totalized feminized right. world, yeah. like any, any emergence of, of violence, like we react extremely strongly. Yeah, no, I think this. You're, I, th I think that in school, you mentioned this earlier in school, the, the female is considered as the model of behavior and the men are punished or boys are punished, um, in order to fit the female model, which is an interesting moment. Whereas in most other cases of human mm -hmm. life, uh, the male is considered the model, like for instance, in the workplace, like we've been discussed, and then the woman's body is punished quite literally yeah. in order but to fit the male. It makes sense with the, the capitalist society because if you, the reason that you're in school is so that one day you can go to college, so that one day you can get a good job, mm. so that one day you can make money. And women, as young children, are just much better able to sit and be still mm -hmm. and usually be docile to direction and nonviolent and those things so it gets prioritized yeah i think that in marriage or in any family brother sister relation um i think we know that a gendered world produces peace as opposed to trying to compete for a sort of ideal of equality mm -hmm. um and so i think this just goes to the point that it's not that vernacular gender has been destroyed. Rather, economic sex is always parasitic upon vernacular gender. It's always destroying vernacular gender in order to mm -hmm. keep the current regime we have. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, if, if you are, most people seem to know that a division of labor and a creation of a woman's world and a man's world within one house seems to produce more peace than, say, uh, mathematical division of the same labor and the same motions and movements and places of the house that you mm -hmm. kind of like cycle through over time. Like most attempts at equality parenting or equality housekeeping um, have to be kind of implemented as this extrinsic sort of, um, I read something and now we're going to, whereas I think most people that are just living and trying to enjoy life naturally find that, well, the laundry room's yours and the kitchen's mine and mm -hmm. that backyard part that that thing maybe it's mowing the grass 
belongs to me properly. And and it doesn't the point is it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. <laughs> the point is that the openness to dividing the world up and to respecting each other as actually belonging by virtue of working in that male world or the female world tends to produce peaceful homes. Mm -hmm. And I think Illich is saying that this is true of society at large. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fractal pattern. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we can end with maybe just some quotes from him. Um, on 80, he's trying to get to kind of get, into the distinction more, which I think at this point we've hammered enough times that hopefully it's getting familiar. He says, gender is substantive. This is not true with sex in the economic neuter. In this perspective of the neuter, sex is a secondary attribute, a property of an individual, an adjective characteristic of a human being. He says the concept of a sex role then could not come into being unless society's institutions were structured to meet the genderless needs of genderless clients with genderless commodities produced in a genderless world the sex role builds on the existence of genderless man right so it's like only insofar as we are already just individuals does sex can sex be reduced to something like a role well here's what this individual should do he goes on the distinction between vernacular gender and sex role is comparable to that between vernacular speech and taught mother tongue that's not going to be helpful because that's a whole Illich meme yeah. that no one's going to get unless you've read a lot of Illich. Uh, but the next thing is uh, between subsistence and economic existence, which we've discussed. Therefore, the fundamental assumptions about the one and the other are distinct. Vernacular speech, gender, and subsistence are character characteristics of a morphological closure of community life on the assumption, implicit and often ritually expressed and mythologically represented, that a community like a body cannot outgrow its size. Taught mother tongue, sex, and lifestyle based on the consumption of commodities all rest on the assumption of an open universe in which scarcity underlies all correlations between needs and means. Gender implies a complementarity within a world that is fundamental and closes the world in on us, however ambiguous and fragile this closure might be. Sex, on the contrary, implies unlimited openness and universe in which there is always more. Strictly speaking, discourse about gender must therefore be expressed in metaphorical language. In no two worlds does it mean univocally the same thing. And the dual specific whole that the complementarity of concrete genders brings into being, a world, a society, a community, is both shaped and limited asymmetrically by its components. So that, I think, is the best description he gives of the, the idea that the world is closed within gender that says, okay, this is how we behave um, as opposed to a idea that there is a endless possibility um, which sex doesn't limit in any way. It just seems to be a true description of our age versus others. And we can only obviously perceive this as a negative, right? Because our presumption is that, well, everyone desires the um, unadulterated liquid openness of modernity in which anyone can be anything. Yeah. And so people that didn't have it because they were restricted by gender to do this rather than that must have suffered under this regime as a sort of violence. Mm -hmm. But that's us, you know, it's possible that's true, but then we would have to prove it. We'd have to yeah. prove that, okay, we can go to the historical records and show the existence of this yearning uh, of the neuter individual to be unlimited. Um, but it seems like the evidence is against us that actually what people tend to long for is the certain closure of communities into the dance of uh, male and female. And that's only with a lot of work and a lot of capital that we're able to break that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like what, <laughs> like it's, it, it's, 
it's hard to imagine that having endless options really makes you happy when we all know that's just not the case. Like if you have to make a college decision or you have to make a job decision or you have to make a donut decision and you have like 2,000 options before you, this is terrible. Yes, yeah, the, the Netflix phenomenon, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can choose anything, so I'll scroll a lot. I will spend two hours yeah. looking at my options. Yeah, totally. Still be unhappy. <sighs> okay. Well? well, how can we wrap this up? I think um, as we've sort of suggested there isn't a immediate call to action here. Um, but what Illich is pointing to is a world that has been radically changed and rad radically shaken. Um, and I think we need to recognize to my mind, what he's right about is that this is a, this is a tyranny. This is a, um, an imposed and regularly imposed loss of peace, uh, between men and men and women. Um, and I think he is quite right that sexism is not something like that's a glitch in the system that we will, mm -hmm. we will um, fix by just more technology, more medicine, more money. Um, but that it is in fact a feature of the system that wherever men and women as substantive realities is destroyed, um, women get the losing deal because they spend more time in their embodied in their bodies um, on love rather than on, uh, production and wage labor. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess from a more practical standpoint, um, the discussion that we've had is, is helpful because then you can look, or at least I can look back and start to understand why I'm unhappy in the <laughs> structures that I am living in sure. or like make sense of, uh, the complaints that I, I see among, women um and then and then you can also start to recognize like oh like where where it where is the gendered world actually manifesting mm -hmm. um and you can start being able to discriminate between those things um yeah I, I think noticing is kind of the first step to making movements all right so next time it's the next three chapters. Mm -hmm. Things are going to get a little weird, but we'll keep tracking as best as we can. Um, and if you uh, have any questions or things that you want to get to, just include them in the comments if you're reading along. Um, I don't know if we'll be able to answer them, but maybe. Yeah, or if we don't answer them, we can always uh, save them for a Q&A mm -hmm. and then do that independently. Okay, great. Enjoy the book. See you next time.